Let us pray for the reading and preaching of God's holy word. Holy God, reveal your presence to us this day as we journey this path with your Son. Through all of life's trials and tribulations, your word sustains us for the journey ahead. Send your spirit upon us that we might listen, discern, and take heart. Be near us this day, and may your word with us stay and dwell with us forever. The epistle lesson is written in Paul's first letter to the Corinthians, chapter 10, beginning with verse 1, the word of the Lord. For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them and the rock was Christ. This ends the reading of the epistle lesson. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Jenny. If you think through the most famous courtroom scenes in history, the scene in To Kill a Mockingbird, 1960, when Atticus Finch is representing Tom Robinson, a black man who has been accused of attacking a young white woman. Or you think of the O.J. Simpson trial, 1994 to 95, when Johnny Cochran stood before Judge Ito appealing to the jurors, if it doesn't fit, you must quit. Or you think of the Nuremberg trials, 1945 to 46, when Nazi war criminals were tried for crimes against humanity for genocide. You think of the trial of Scott Peterson, the trial of John Gotti, Jack Kevorkian, Timothy McVeigh, the drama of a courtroom setting. Each one of these trials with the claim to be the trial of the century. And today we're going to look at a trial, the trial of the ages, where a man's life was at stake, as was yours and mine, as we work through this season of Lent. We are working through the closing chapters of the gospel according to Matthew, the last week of Jesus' earthly ministry. And we come now to Matthew 26. We're going to look at verses 47 to 68. In your pew Bible, it's page 1545. Follow along with me as I read the gospel of Christ. While he, that is Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, While he was still speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, arrived, and with him was a large crowd armed with swords and clubs sent from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Now the betrayer had arranged a signal with them. He said, the one I kiss is the man. Arrest him. And going at once to Jesus, Judas said, greetings, rabbi, and he kissed him. And Jesus replied, friend... Do what you came for. Then the men stepped forward. They seized Jesus and they arrested him. And with that, one of Jesus' companions, we know from John's gospel that it was Peter, one of Jesus' companions reached for his sword, 
drew it out and struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his ear. Put your sword back in its place, Jesus said to him, for all who draw the sword will die by the sword. Do you think I cannot call on my father and he'll at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels? That's 72,000 angels, more than that. But how often then, but how then, he asks, would the scriptures be fulfilled that say it must happen in this way? And at that time, Jesus said to the crowd, Am I leading a rebellion that you've come out with swords and clubs to capture me? Every day I sat in the temple courts teaching and you didn't arrest me. But this has all taken place that the writings of the prophets might be fulfilled. And then all the disciples deserted Jesus and fled. Those who had arrested Jesus took him to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the teachers of the law and the elders had assembled. But Peter followed him at a distance, right up to the courtyard of the high priest. And he entered and he sat down with the guards to see the outcome. And the chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin were looking for false evidence against Jesus so that they could put him to death, but they didn't find any. Though many false witnesses came forward. Finally, two came forward and declared, This fellow said, I'm able to destroy the temple of God and rebuild it in three days. Then the high priest stood up and said to Jesus, Are you not going to answer? What is this testimony that these men are bringing against you? But Jesus remained silent. The high priest said to him, I charge you under oath by the living God, tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Yes, it is as you say, Jesus replied. But I say to all of you, in the future, you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. And the high priest tore his clothes and said, He has spoken blasphemy. Why do we need any more witnesses? Look, now you have heard the blasphemy. What do you think? He is worthy of death, they answered. And then they spit in his face. They struck him with their fists. Others slapped him and said, prophesy to us, Christ, who hit you? What do we see here? We see a clash of two kingdoms. We see the identity of a king revealed and we see the incredible self-sacrifice of that king. First, we see a clash of kingdoms. What is a kingdom? A kingdom is an administration. It's a way of getting things done, a way of organizing the world, a way of influencing the world. There's a, there's a way the world in its fallenness gets things done. And then there's a contrasting way that we see here, a differing alternative kingdom, a differing alternative way of influence in Jesus. Now, how do these function? First, the, the kingdom of this world gets things done in a top-down kind of way. It it influences the world through uh, the exertion of power. You see here all the tools of power. The the crowd comes. You've got a mob. They've got swords, mentioned multiple times. They've got clubs. This is the way the world gets things done, by getting our guys on top and using coercion and control and manipulation and force. This is the world of ultimatums and demands and threats and violence. 
violence even. And we see it, yes, in these guards and in this mob with their swords and their clubs. But we also see it in Peter, who also has a sword, who also draws it, who, who reaches out to, to, to cleave one of these guards' skulls, but, but, but he's a fisherman. And he stinks at sword play. And so he ends up slicing the guy's ear off. And, and we do not have a slide of that this morning. Uh, that Bible in your pew is R-rated, just so you know. Uh, but he slices the guy's ear off. You know, this can be, you know, here even a follower of Jesus can function in the wrong kingdom. And Jesus rebukes him saying, you're functioning in the wrong kingdom. That's the way the world influences. That's the way the kingdom of the world gets things done. I bring you a different kingdom, Peter. Not looking for levers to gain power and influence, pressuring people through passive aggression or just plain aggression. We see the tools of power in the kingdom of the world, top-down influence, control, coercion, force, authority. And then we also see the secrecy and the deception, the manipulation. Notice, all of this is happening in the middle of the night. Jesus says, you could have arrested me at any point in the temple courts themselves. But you didn't do it. You waited until a garden at at one in the morning, in the middle of the night, when nobody's around, nobody's going to see it. And did you notice that they had already assembled the entire Sanhedrin, or at least a a quorum of the Sanhedrin, at the high priest's residence in the middle of the night? You know, it's like like when members of Congress have a quorum at 1 a.m. and bring somebody in to try him. I mean, this is is happening like clockwork. This is a well-planned operation. It's, It's deceptive. It's manipulative. It's secretive. It's the way the world does things. And it involves betrayal. Betrayal with a kiss. It was dark outside. There were no street lamps. They needed to know which one was the ringleader. Which one was Jesus? Who do they need to eliminate? And Jesus betrayed with a kiss from Judas, one of the twelve. You see the tools of power. You see the the secrecy and deception. It's the way the world gets things done. The kingdom of the world why were the priests and the leaders doing all of these things? But they, they were concerned with preserving their power because the motivation of the world in getting things done, the motivation of, of this worldly kingdom in influencing people is, order, is in order to, to preserve my power or maybe it's my prestige or my influence. I need to look good. I need to get ahead. I need to be on top. It's my position. It's my career. It's my relationship goals. It's my reputation. It's my strength. And the influence here from the top down It's the way the worldly kingdoms operate. And yet this is a clash of two kingdoms. Because there's the kingdom of this world and then there's the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. How do we see the kingdom of Jesus influencing but through self-sacrificial service? The kingdom of Jesus influences from the bottom up by taking the lowest place, the place of the slave, not fighting over the crown, but fighting over the towel and then washing people's feet. Look at what Jesus does. He tells Peter, Peter, lay down your sword. That's not the values of the kingdom. The values of the kingdom are love and peace and patience and gentleness. Uh, the kingdom of God's values that say it's the poor who were blessed. It's those who weep who are blessed. Blessed are those who are despised 
Uh, Paul, who said that God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise, the, the weak things to shame the strong. You see, the kingdom of Jesus reverses everything. The whole direction of power and influence is turned on its head so that now in the kingdom of Jesus, the way up is actually down. And the way to power and strength is actually through weakness. And the way to true riches in life is by giving it away. It's Jesus and his kingdom about a God who loves the weak and the needy and the poor and the bankrupt. Those who know they're horrible, rotten sinners and desperately need a savior. This is, this is the kingdom of Jesus. And how does it do its influence? What do you see Jesus doing? His last great miracle before going to the cross is he sees the man who is there to drag him to his death. His torturer, the one who's going to take him to trial. And he sees him, and his ear is bleeding. And Jesus reaches out, and he heals the guard who is there to take him to his trial and ultimately to his death. His last miracle, healing his enemy, serving his enemy. You know, if Jesus were coming to St. Louis for a healing ministry, this is not how we would get things done. We would get things done by, first of all, uh, getting some good trained administrators who would develop the proper criteria for healing and go through and receive the applications and evaluate the applications to find out who in St. Louis is most worthy of a healing from Jesus. And that's not how Jesus rolls. Jesus reaches out and heals his enemy. That's the kingdom of Jesus. That's influence from the bottom up. Um, it's like if you can imagine, you know, being in, 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 in Belgium during the First World War as Ju- German troops have, have come right over top and taken control of your, your, comp- your country. They're, they're oppressing you. And, and imagine 1917, you are in Liège, uh, you know, in a nice little cafe, you know, right by, you know, L'Escalier de Montagne, de, de Burien. And uh, it's a beautiful sunny day outside, and you're sitting in this cafe in occupied Belgium. And, and you're sitting there with a bunch of Belgians, and Jesus is there with them, and they're all talking, and they're all eating, you know, waffles or, or palm frites. And, and then in comes, into the cafe comes the local German commandant. And he is in a bad way. He's obviously been wounded in battle, but, but he's still in charge. But he's got, you know, big bloody, you know, bandages over his head. And he's walking on crutches. But, you know, he's got all his, his entourage with him. And, and Jesus stands up. You know, all the Belgians are looking at this guy. Jesus stands up and he rushes over to him and says, Commander Speer, have I got something for you? And Jesus gives him a big hug. And then the bandages fall off. And the guy can stand up on his own and he's perfectly healed. And all the Belgians are getting all worked up and frustrated. They're not saying anything, but you can see Hercule Poirot over in the corner, you know, with his napkin, you know, blotting his his mouth and then throwing it down on the floor in disgust. And the Belgians yell at Jesus, Jesus, get back over here. Sit back down. Finish your waffles. Jesus, we need to talk to you. Jesus, you're healing the wrong man. That's what Jesus does. He's just healed the wrong guy. He has just healed his enemy because that's how the kingdom of Jesus 
differs from the kingdom of this world. Jesus heals his killer. It's the kingdom of God breaking in. Bottom-up influence. It's, you know, often when we Christians think about influencing our culture, we, we think in our head that that means if we can get Christians on top, in charge, if we can get Christians in the White House and in the Congress and in the State House and in the courts, then Christians from the top down can influence this civilization and make it godly. And, and there's a place for Christian statesmen, and I'm thankful for Christians who, who are in public service, especially when they get that it's public service from the bottom up. But, but the most powerful way that Jesus influences us, how did Jesus influence you? If Jesus is a significant figure in your life, what did he do to become a significant figure in your life and influence you? Was it by standing on a throne and demanding that you obey him? My heart wouldn't respond to that. Or did he influence you by getting down on his feet and washing you? By going to a cross and dying in your place? It's the way the kingdom of Jesus influences from the bottom up. Tim Winston is uh, perhaps Australia's most celebrated novelist. He has more than a dozen best-selling books and has won a bunch of literary prizes. And, and Winton was once interviewed on a a TV show, and at one point during the interview, the conversation turned to Winston's Christian faith. He's a believer, and uh, and he was asked, hey, when when you were about five years old, a stranger came into your family and affected your family quite profoundly. Is that right? And Tim Winton went on to tell how his father was a policeman, and his father had been in a terrible accident in the mid-1960s. He was knocked off his motorcycle, actually, by a drunk driver. And after weeks in a coma, his dad was allowed home. But but Winston says it this way. He didn't recognize him. He said, my dad was, he was like an earlier version of my dad, a sort of augmented version of my father. He was sort of recognizable, but not, he wasn't totally my dad. Everything was busted up, and they had him sitting in this chair, and he couldn't really move. And, And as a kid, I was terrified. And Winston's father was a big man. And Mrs. Winton, uh, she, she had a great deal of trouble even just bathing him every day. There was nothing that, you know, Tim, as a little five-year-old at the time, could do to help. And, and news of the family situation, it got around to the local community. And shortly afterwards, Winton recalls, his, his mom got, got a knock at the door. Oh, uh, good day. Uh, my name's Lynn, said this stranger at the door. Uh, I heard your, your hubby's not well. Is there anything I can do? And Lynn Thomas was, he was from the local church. And this man had heard about the family's difficulties and he just wanted to help. Winton says, he just showed up. And he used to carry my dad from his bed and he would put my dad in the bathtub and he used to bathe my dad. This was the 1960s in Perth, in the suburbs. It was not the sort of thing one did every day. And according to Winton, this simple act of kindness from a single Christian had a powerful effect 
said it, it really touched me and that regardless of theology or anything else, watching one grown man bother for nothing to show up and wash a sick man that he didn't know, it wasn't his family, you know, it really affected me. It's the values of the kingdom of Jesus. A kingdom that influences not from the top down, but from the bottom up. We see this clash of kingdoms between a, a top-down kingdom of the world that's all power and control and self-interest Clashing with the kingdom of Jesus, bottom up, serving to bless even our enemies. So we see the clash of two kingdoms. We also see the identity of the king revealed in this passage. As you go from the arrest scene into the courtroom scene before the the high priest and the Sanhedrin, Jesus is, is asked, point blank. Is he the Christ? Are you the Messiah? Is that, what you're ma- is that the claim that you're making, Jesus of Nazareth? And, and Jesus refused to answer. At first he was silent, but then they put him under oath. Uh, this language here is the high priest putting Jesus under oath so that he is therefore legally obligated to answer. And so Jesus answers. I mean, in a sense, he had been making some pretty outrageous claims in terms of his identity all along. Uh, Implicitly, Jesus had been claiming to be divine. You know, when people sinned against God and Jesus said, don't worry, I forgive you, over and over and over again, you know, people wanted to kill him for that because they understood that no one can forgive sins against God but God alone. And Jesus was claiming that prerogative to be the injured party that was therefore able to cancel the debt. Jesus said things like, one greater than the temple is here. The temple was the most holy place on the planet. The temple was where God dwelled invisibly with his people. And Jesus was saying, I'm better than that. I'm greater than that. I'm the presence of God visibly. Jesus claimed to be the Lord of the Sabbath. The Sabbath was the Lord's day. To claim to be Lord of the Sabbath was to claim to be divine. Jesus received worship, and he didn't rebuke people for it. In the book of Revelation, when angels are worshipped, they say, whoa, don't do it. I'm just a creature like you. Jesus is like, bring it on. Jesus claimed to be the final judge, the one where if you knew him, you would have eternal life. And if he said, away from me, I do not know you, you would not. Uh, But here Jesus is being very blunt and very direct within a a first century Jewish-Palestinian discourse. And so he says, yes, I am the Messiah. And then all hell breaks loose, quite literally. I mean, you realize he's in the presence of the Sanhedrin. These are of ancient, of our first century Palestine. These are the esteemed men. These are the great and the good, by which we mean the rich and the powerful. They were the people who had all the power except for Rome itself. They were the high priests. They were uh, the, the insiders. They were the leaders of the people. These were, were you know, People of class, people of status, people of nobility and standing, the cultural elite. These are men of dignity. And when Jesus answers their question, they descend into savagery. Uh, You know, the priests and the leaders, they're jumping all over Jesus. They're throwing punches. They're pulling out hair. They're kicking him. They're lashing out. They're mocking him. He he would have been blindfolded. And so they're smacking him in the face and saying, Jesus, prophesy to me. Who hit you? They're mocking him. 
Why would they do that? The high priest even tears his robes at this point, which was illegal, except it was allowed under one and only one circumstance to actually tear the holy robes of the high priest. He could only do it in the presence of blasphemy and only extreme blasphemy. And that's the crime that they cite Jesus with. That's why they want him dead. That's what makes the most noble and elegant of people descend into savagery because they thought Jesus was claiming to be divine, to be the king in heaven. And the reason they thought that is because Jesus was claiming to be divine, to be the king in heaven. It's this reference to Psalm 110, sitting at the right hand of God, this reference to Daniel 7 that he quotes, coming with the clouds of heaven, uh, using the title from Daniel 7, the son of man, with all that implied in that vision from the seventh chapter of the prophet Daniel as, as one who would rule from eternity, one who himself was eternal, one who would be worshipped by all the peoples of the earth. Jesus was claiming that he would be enthroned as the very son of man, as, as God in the flesh come to redeem and to be worshipped. N.T. Wright says it this way. He says, these two texts, Daniel 7 and, and Psalm 110, He says they pointed toward the enthronement in which the Messiah or Son of Man would share the very throne of Israel's God. In in Jewish parlance, this was an explicit claim of deity. Jesus had said his last, am I the Son of God? Yes, I am. Am I divine? Yes, I am. Will I share the throne of Israel's God? Yes, I will. Will I be worshipped by all the peoples of the earth? Yes, I will. Are you the one? Yes, I am. And it's the last thing Jesus says until he's dying on the cross. The king, his identity, revealed for all to see. And on top of that, Jesus tells them that I'll see you in court He says, you will see this. You will see the Son of Man coming on his throne, on God's throne. Jesus is saying to his judges, understand that soon this courtroom will be reversed and you will see me on my throne of judgment and I will hold you accountable for everything you are going to do at this point. As we await this this imminent collapse of this present corrupt regime, the kingdom of this world, Jesus is saying, we're going to see its replacement by my kingdom, the kingdom of the Son of Man, the kingdom of God in the flesh, with King Jesus revealed as the one who sits on the throne of God in heaven. So where are you with Jesus? kind of bring this down a notch to your life and where your heart is and where your life really is. Uh, Do you see what Jesus is doing here? Notice that Jesus is making it impossible for you to shove him into a bookcase somewhere with biographies of great historic teachers. He is making it impossible for you to view him as a great religious leader but not the Son of God and God in the flesh. He's pulling out all of the middle ground. He's making his hearer come to a decision. Is he your Lord or isn't he? Is he the Son of God or is he not? Does he have authority to tell you how to live your life or not? 
Does he get to tell you how to manage your finances, how to manage your relationships, how to treat the poor, how to manage your sexuality, how to deal with your anger, how to to change how you live, or does he not? Who is Jesus to you? Is he your Lord, absolute, fully, finally, and forever your king? Or is he not? You see, there are only so many options because Jesus is pulling out the middle ground. He's making you decide. It's like C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity uh, 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 talked about his trilemma where there are only so many options. Once Jesus says, oh, I'm the son of God, I am the son of man, and I'm going to sit on God's throne and judge the nations. At that point, once you make that claim, there are only so many options. Either he was wrong and he didn't know it, in which case he was a lunatic in C.S. Lewis's language, or he was wrong and he knew it, in which case he's a really evil, evil man who is using the tools of this world more powerfully than anyone has before, deception, lies, in order to gain power. And if you can rule out those two options, that he wasn't crazy, he doesn't seem to act like a crazy person, and he wasn't evil, then you only have the third option left, which is that Jesus was actually accurate in his claim. C.S. Lewis says it this way. He writes, I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about Jesus, that I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. Uh, That is the one thing, Lewis says, that we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sorts of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with a man who says he is a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You cannot shut him up for a fool. Or you can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon. Or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that option open to us. He did not intend to. Now it seems to be obvious that he was neither lunatic nor a fiend. And consequently, however strange or terrifying or unlikely it may seem, I have to accept the view that he was and is God. Is he your Lord? The identity of the king is revealed. What's your response? It only takes a moment to get right with Jesus. If if he is who he says he was, all you have to do is say, Lord, I accept it. Lord, you drive. Lord, I need you as my Savior. I acknowledge you. It only takes a moment to become a Christian, to invite him in and to hand over the reins and to accept him as your Lord. See, we see this clash of two kingdoms, the kingdom of the world and the kingdom of Jesus. And we see the identity of the king revealed, and yet we see something more. We see the unimaginable self-sacrifice of King Jesus. You see... God himself submitted to the trial of the ages. This courtroom scene is God in the dock. Uh, He gave them all the information they needed to pressure the Romans to execute him. 
to kill the author of life. This is God being savagely beaten. This is God suffering. This is God being ripped apart. God being stripped and humiliated and mocked and tortured and nailed and suffocated. This is the self-sacrifice of the king. Malcolm Muggridge says this. He says it was manifestly the most famous death in history. No other death has aroused one hundredth the part of the interest or been remembered with one hundredth part of the intensity and concern. See, this wasn't even the first time that God had put himself on trial. Um, Ray Cortese talks about the passage in the book of Exodus and the law of Moses in chapter 17 of Exodus where we as God's people, we were in the wilderness. We've been brought out of Egypt and we were miserable. We were complaining. We didn't like the food. We didn't like the travel. We honestly thought God was being unfair to us. We weren't reaching the promised land. And it honestly looked better if we could just go back and be slaves in Egypt. And so we were grumbling against God and shaking our fists at him and complaining. Does it sound familiar? Have you ever been in that place where you're mad at God and you're blaming God for your problems and you're irritated and you think you deserve better? Does that sound familiar? That was ancient Israel in the wilderness in Exodus 17. And and we see that God hears all our complaints and all of the grumbling. And we want to hold God accountable. So in our complaining, God spoke to Moses and he said, Moses, bring my people to the rock. What's the rock? The rock represents God himself. He says, bring them to the rock. Oh, and bring the rod. You know what the rod was? The rod was the rod of God's judgment, the rod of God's wrath. The rod was the rod that brought the most powerful of ancient empires, the empire of Egypt, to its knees. It was the rod that struck the Nile and it turned to blood. It was the the rod that, that struck down the firstborn sons of all of the Egyptians, the rod of God's judgment. And and, and God says, in all of our grumbling and our complaining in Exodus 17, he says, bring them to the rock, bring them to me, and bring the rod. It was bad news. It would send the chill down the spine of any Israelite. God saying, I'm going to meet with you, and I'm bringing the rod. And they come, and the rod is there. And God speaks to Moses, and he says, now instead of striking them, Strike the rock. Strike me. And he strikes God. And the rock breaks open. And out comes a flood of living water. To nourish the sinful people of Israel. What kind of God puts himself on trial? What kind of God takes the punishment for his people? What kind of God is smitten and struck. In order to bring blessing to his enemies. It happened to ancient Israel, and it happened again 2,000 years ago as Jesus, God in the flesh, comes. And he takes the rod, and it strikes him so that out from him flows living water. A king who sacrifices himself 
so we can live. When that gets hold of you, when you feel that forgiveness, when you feel that weight lifted off your shoulders, when you know that the only opinion that matters in all the universe is God's opinion of you, and you know that he delights in you, when you look at Jesus in that courtroom, in the trial of ages, facing torture and death, and ultimately facing the rod of God's judgment, you know what Jesus was thinking of at that point? He was thinking of you. He was thinking of you. And the judge stepped down into the dock and became the one judge taking the punishment that was due us and he did it because he was thinking of you. Most kingdoms will do anything they can to protect their king. It's the unspoken premise of the game of chess, for example. If the king falls, the kingdom is lost, the game is over and therefore a king has to be protected at all costs. You know, at the Allied invasion of, of Normandy, D-Day, June 6, 1944, the British Prime Minister, you know, Winston Churchill felt like it was his duty to be there in the battle, to lead the battle, to be in the English Channel on a battleship leading his people. And yet the concern was that, that he would be at risk, uh, grave risk. And so Dwight Eisenhower, the American commander, made some phone calls and got some people on the line. And within no time, Winston Churchill got a call. It was from King George VI, King of England, explaining to the Prime Minister that if the Prime Minister felt it was his duty to be on that battleship, then the King would have to be there with him. Because if it's the Prime Minister's responsibility, then certainly it is the responsibility of the King. Well, Prime Minister Churchill changed his mind and rescinded his need to lead his troops in battle. He stayed at Number 10 Downing Street in London in the relative safety of his own home because a kingdom will do anything it has to in order to protect its king. But Jesus, the king, did just the opposite. With royal courage, he surrendered his body to be crucified and condemned, not just by man, but by God the Father himself. And on the cross, he offered a king's ransom, his life for the life of all of you, his people. He would die for all the wrong things that I had ever done, that you had ever done, that would ever be done, completely atoning for all of our sins. The crown of thorns that was meant to be a mockery of his royal claims actually proclaimed his kingly dignity even in death. He faced the trial of all trials, the trial of the ages, the innocent king becoming guilty for us, being blamed in our place so that we can live. He gave up all the honors of kingship to have you. It's the incredible self-sacrifice of the king. I think I've got one photo today the tall guy in white in the middle. This kid's name is, is Zach Hoagland. And uh, it was October of 2015 that Zach Hoagland was, was uh, at the state qualifying meet for track. It was the Davis County of Bloomfield Senior. And he finished first in the race as this meet in Columbus Junction, Iowa. He was first across the finish line to the cheers of his family and his friends. He was the victor. And as Zach caught his breath and looked back at all of his competitors about 500 feet down the track, he saw a young man named Garrett Henson collapse to the ground. 
Garrett's legs had given out, his back had given out, he was hyperventilating, he was crumpled up on the track, he'd collapsed, he was trying to get up, he was trying to crawl, but he couldn't, he was obviously in a medical crisis, and and Zach looked around, and nobody was noticing, he cried out, is anybody going to help him, and nobody heard him, and so Zach did the one thing he felt he needed to do, he ran to his competitor, He got down, he checked to see he was okay, he picked him up over his shoulders, picked him up and carried him across the finish line. And as he did so, he could hear the cry of the judge, disqualified. Zach knew the rules. For any runner to help another runner in the race was to mean that they would both be disqualified. It's a picture Because Zach gave up first place. He gave up qualifying for state. He gave up going to state. He gave up possibly winning state. He gave up the possibility of scholarships and getting ahead and getting into the right school. And in a moment of intense, purposeful decision, he gave it all up to help a competitor who needed love. It's a picture of what it means to live in the kingdom of Jesus, influencing the world, not by trying to get on top, but by living as if you were on the bottom, serving all people, even your opponents. And it's a picture of living in the kingdom because it's a picture of the king, because that is precisely what Jesus saw. That is precisely what he did. He saw you crumpled up 500 feet way down the track. You were hyperventilating. You weren't able to move. You had collapsed completely and you would never reach the finish line. And Jesus, the only one to ever cross the finish line, came and picked you up and disqualified himself for having done so. He carried you across the finish line to glory. That's the kingdom of Jesus because that's Jesus, our King. Let's pray. Lord Jesus Christ, you are our King, a King who rules us and influences us from below by being our servant, Lord, that we might fight not over the crown, but over the towel as a people who represent you and your love to all the watching world, including this city of St. Louis, Lord. I pray, Father, as we come to this table and consecrate these elements to you, this bread and this cup, Lord, that you would get down and wash our feet, that we might rise to wash the feet of others, to be a community of love, not just for ourselves, but for the sake of this city and this world, Lord, to be your church and your family who reflect your image. It's in the name of Christ Jesus, our Savior, that we pray. Amen.